0: Hey, it's Ed. Before we get started, I want to thank two brand new podcast supporters, Zach Tayer and Jim Howell. If Jim Howell sounds familiar, it's because he's been on the podcast twice. And if you haven't listened to those episodes, I definitely think you should go back and take a listen. They're really, really good. And they're two of the most popular episodes I have. So check those out. Lots of good book recommendations in there. But Jim and Zach really, really appreciate the support. If anybody else wants to support it, you can go to mountainprairiecom slash support and check it out. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Jay Clayberg. Jay is a conservationist who is currently the Associate Director of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, He's also the co-founder of Explore Ranches, a new company that connects outdoor enthusiasts to some of the most iconic private ranches in Texas and beyond. Jay has built his career and life around a deep respect for the land and an inborn sense of responsibility to protect these landscapes, as well as the wildlife and heritage they support. As a sixth-generation Texan and landowner, responsible land stewardship is in Jay's blood, and as you'll hear in our conversation, he's laser-focused on leaving Texas an even better place than he found it. Growing up on his family's large-scale South Texas working ranch, Jay's been closely connected to the land for as long as he can remember. After high school and college on the East Coast, Jay headed to Brazil for several years, where he worked with renowned conservationist John Kane Carter to protect the region's threatened landscapes. It was in Brazil that Jay began to hone his personal conservation philosophy – and had a number of crazy adventures along the way. After a stint in for-profit real estate and earning his MBA, Jay decided to focus all of his professional energy on conservation in his home state. Jay and I have been friends for over 25 years, so it was a real treat to connect with him on the podcast to discuss our shared passions for land conservation and adventure. We normally just retell hilarious stories from high school the whole time. As usual, we covered a lot. We discussed his upbringing on his family ranch, and lessons learned from both his family members and the larger ranch community. We talk about his time in Brazil, the conservation challenges in that region, and one close call on a small airplane that could have been the end of Jay. We also discuss explore ranches, his work with Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, his role in the upcoming film, The River and the Wall, and some of his adventures throughout the West. We talk about the importance of humility and honesty benefits of having a for-profit mentality in the nonprofit world and his favorite books films and much more be sure to check out the episode notes for a full list of topics that we discussed and links to everything i know you're going to enjoy this episode so here it is jay clayberg when you meet somebody for the first time never met them they come up to you and they say so what do you do how do you answer that question
1: I say that I'm associate director for Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, which is the nonprofit partner to the state's fish and wildlife and park agency. And my primary objective within that organization is to conserve habitat for the benefit of wildlife and people. And I think generally my sort of focus over the last five to to 10 years has been on conserving land primarily in texas and um enabling more access mm-hmm. to to land uh, whether that's on private or public um property and i guess more recently have started a um a company called explore ranches and uh finished up earlier this year a a film um about a trip that five of us took from El Paso to the Gulf of Mexico, but all of it really focused on, um, habitat and wildlife and, uh, public access.
0: Awesome. And that's enough to fill up like three or four hours talking about all that in (laughs) detail. So so maybe, um, maybe let's start by talking about explore ranches since that's the newest thing. And then, and you can talk a little bit about that. And then I'm going to have one of your, uh, one of your co-founders come on Uh, later to go into great detail, but can you just talk a little bit about that, that idea and kind of how it all played out?
1: Sure. Uh, so we, three of us, uh, who are all landowners, um, formed Explore Ranches and launched a, an online platform, um, on December the 3rd, uh, that, uh, houses it currently eight ranches, seven of which are in Texas and, uh, one of which is in Steamboat Springs to allow those properties to market their, um, uh, amenities, their accommodations, uh, their recreational opportunities on a limited basis to, um, outdoor, uh, enthusiasts and, and travelers. And the idea sort of came out of my upbringing, which, was on a working ranch in South Texas that's been in my family uh, since the mid-1800s. And over that time, we've built a a sustainable operation with multiple revenue um, sources that really the the focus of all um, that uh, income production is is really to to keep a a large swath of um, native South Texas habitat intact. And we've got the benefit of 160 plus years of doing all that. And not all landowners, especially in a state that's 95% um, privately owned, have that luxury of either having, you know, large acreage or, um, you know, a business enterprise to help them hold on to to, um, open space and to steward that. At the same time, with my work at Parks and Wildlife Foundation, I've seen over the years, and and some work um, with Grand Canyon National Park, that that you know we've got public um, spaces, uh, but a lot of them are um, in high demand. And so, connecting people with with the outdoors is also you know a huge incentive of mine. And so, we created this business to connect outdoor enthusiasts and landowners that that um, have uh, wildlife habitat and these just amazing scenic um, parts of the country so that they can hold on to that that land for for generations to come because when they do that ultimately benefits all of us and that in connecting outdoor enthusiasts uh, with those opportunities, they fall in love with it. They, they, uh, you know, connect or reconnect with the outdoors. And then hopefully, um, you know, that creates kind of a a cycle in which they become, um, conservationists and have a, uh, conservation ethic with, with their interaction with, with those landowners.
0: Yeah, I think that's I mean I I think that's a powerful a powerful way to look at it because I mean that's that's how I got into conservation is just through spending time outdoors as a kid and that connection and then one thing led to another and now it's basically my full-time job. And so I don't think when people hear that, people who may not have experienced it may think that that's, you know, there's there are a lot of steps between being spending time outside And being a conservationist, but I mean, I think you and I are both proof that that's, that's how it happens. Do you agree with that? Right.
1: No, absolutely. And, and I think it starts with access. And if you don't live in Texas, you know, having access to the outdoors, um, and especially in the Western United States, it's a little bit different, uh, when you go east of the Mississippi, but if, if you're in Colorado or Montana, I mean, you just step out, outside your, your front door and you, within a few minutes, you've got access to some, either national forest or a national park or a state park. It's pretty readily available. But in Texas, I mean, I happen to live in a city, Austin, that is really well connected with green belts. And there's a lake right in the center, um, uh, a lake that is part of the Colorado River that sort of runs right through the center of the city. And so Having access to and um, that uh, creating that connection um, with the outdoors is kind of second second nature um, for a city like Austin. But you get outside of that in Dallas and Houston and some of these other places, and even in rural Texas. And um, you know, there's definitely a barrier between uh, wanting to get outdoors and then actually finding a place to go to go do that. And we're seeing that even in the hill country with some of the state parks that, um, you know, they're relatively small and, um, they're limited in terms of capacity. And so the summertime, uh, there are, you know, hour long waits to get into to some of these places. And so, um, I think part of our job, I think in conservation is to, pass on this conservation ethic, and you can't do that if you don't, uh, allow people to fall in love with the outdoors and, mm-hmm. and they've got to have access to it, um, in order to do that.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think about, and we'll talk about our, our background together, but, uh, I think about that trip you and I took in high school out to Colorado yeah. as one of the defining points in my life that got me focused on a love of the outdoors, and I mean I can trace it to that exact point. And so I, I think it's it's very uh I think it's a great business idea, but I also think there's a lot of um side non monetary uh benefits to the business. And I think when you and I were initially talking about it, you you described it as a Airbnb for ranches. Is that is that still kind of an accurate description?
1: Yeah, I think I think we're um it, it is an accurate description. There's a, a, a spectrum on which each of these ranches um sit. So I think Airbnb is sort of on one end of the spectrum that's a choose-your-own-adventure that's uh, not necessarily a guided trip. You've got access to accommodations and uh, two to ten thousand acres of essentially your own um, private uh, wildlife preserve, if you will. Um, And at the other end of the spectrum is a fully guided uh, experience that involves the landowner and uh, meals and everything. So we're, we're trying to offer a little bit of, of everything uh, to folks who maybe don't feel as comfortable uh, going out uh, into the outdoors on their own and really need, you know, someone to, to sort of interpret what they're seeing and, and guide them along the way. But it, for, you know, an elevator pitch, Airbnb for for ranches uh, will do,
0: and so uh, like we like I mentioned a minute ago, I'm going to have one of your co-founders come on soon to go into all the details. But could you just give a quick run through on the on the team uh, that is behind Explore Ranches? Because you got some some cool people on board.
1: Sh- sure, uh, w- Allison Ryan, who who will be uh, on the show here s- soon. She grew up in El Paso. That's that's kind of our connection. Because I spent uh, about eight years out there, and we both ended up in in Austin. She's a landowner. uh, She and her family own a property in the Davis Mountains, which is um, in the uh, kind of north of of Marfa in West Texas. uh, Some of the most biologically rich uh, environment in Texas, the third largest peak in Texas, not too far from, from Guadalupe peak, which is the, the, the highest. And she's, she is facing a similar situation that a lot of, um, private landowners are in that her, uh, it, it will be her responsibility in the next decade or more, um, to try and, and hold on to and, and, um, and improve the property that, she and her family own. And so it, part of this idea came out of her personal struggle um, because they've got, you know, some really rugged uh, uh, landscape. They are limited in terms of uh, what the, they can do on that property. It's, it's not great grazing habitat. They've got a conservation easement on it through the Nature Conservancy. They're, they're attached to tens of thousands of uh, of conserved acreage Around them, and she started taking people here in Austin, mostly women, out on these guided trips uh, to her place. And you know, just just the the um, the process of trying to market that uh, was daunting, and, and so it really was the eureka moment for me. And I went out to go visit her and took some friends of mine who had spent a lot of time outdoors. One is now with, with Amazon. And the other one uh, has spent a lot of time in Europe hiking around and skiing, and they were blown away. No, number one, that they couldn't believe that it was uh, that we were in Texas, mm-hmm. and number two, that you know for them it was a foreign concept that someone actually owned a mountain yeah. or uh, you know or owned a canyon. Yeah. And uh, they said, "Man, you've got something here." And so we started brainstorming the the, the, the three of us, and and the third partner is Jess Womack who you and I went to high school with, and he has uh, been in the ranch operation business for, I um, mean, his family for multiple generations, but he himself operating his family's property on the Texas Gulf Coast for over a decade. And he's he's dealing with the same issues. Uh, you know, you, you have to diversify your income. And um, and he's been trying to figure out, you know, a way to to... Continue to hold on to that property and and improve the habitat, and so we kind of put our heads together and said, you know, if, if we could help uh, these landowners spread the word about what they're doing and the value that that they're providing to the public, also generate some income for them, and then and then provide um, outdoor enthusiasts with some access, then uh, we think we've got something. And so we spent the last eight months. Um, contacting landowners around the state and, and outside of, of Texas, uh, and have ended up with close to a hundred thousand acres worth of private, uh, lands for, for people to, to recreate on.
0: That's awesome, man. Um, I need to get Jess on the, on the podcast, but I'm scared it would just be like the two of us kind of giggling the whole time and I don't like telling (laughs) telling silly stories. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm going to, I'll have links to explore ranches and to your social media and all that stuff. And then obviously we'll be talking with Allison in detail so people can check it out now and then, um, and then listen back in for for more detail on that. Um, I want to talk about your kind of personal journey to, to full-time conservation as well, because you've got such an interesting background and we linked up, I mean, it was like 25 years ago now, which is crazy. But before that, you yeah, grew up, I as know. you mentioned, grew up on on a massive ranch in Texas, you know, very closely connected to land. Your family's been closely connected to land for, what are you, are you like the sixth generation, seventh?
1: Sixth generation, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. And so, like, when you were growing up there and that was just kind of your day-to-day life, was was this conservation ethic that you've developed and that your family's developed. Was that something that you guys talked about? Like, was this something your, your family would, would try to teach you about, or was it just kind of something that was always there and not really discussed, but you just kind of picked up on it over the years and it was a part of you or maybe something in the middle.
1: Yeah, I think maybe in the middle, you know, growing up probably through, I would say before I went to high school, um, I went to school on the ranch with the sons and daughters of, cowboys and spent my weekends and and most of my summers working with them. Uh, and then during the hunting season, spent a lot of time, um, out in the field and, and then just generally my free time was outdoors all the time. I either had a bike or I had a motorcycle, uh, or I had a horse, uh, and was just, I mean, it, it was, um, you know, a pretty, now I realize, you know, very, um, unique way to to grow up. And I think just through osmosis learn that, you know, there are all of these different facets to um conservation and and land management. We've got we have cattle, we have a farming operation, um we have hunting and hunting leases uh which started in in the mid 80s really in Texas. Um, hunting leases have been over the years a way for for most people to um, generate revenue that allows them to um, improve habitat and you know before that time you'd be hard pressed to to find anyone I think before the mid 80s who believed that wildlife someday would actually be higher value mm-hmm. than than cattle and and that's true today um and so as i got into you know high school and college and got really more as a shareholder of of a company that owns uh land and and uh, agribusiness operations more into the details of you know what it what are the, what are the numbers and what does it actually take to do this what's the science behind it we started um through some of my father's efforts um years ago a wildlife research institute down in texas that uh down in kingsville that's that's associated with texas Mm a&m and and really provides science uh to the decisions that we're making and not just what that my family is making but to you know three million or more acres of what's called the last habitat of uh south texas prairie um and those landowners so you're really now, as I as I've you know gotten older, realize that, um, you know, it's it requires a lot of work um, to to conserve large landscapes. And you've got to have science and you also have have to have engaged stakeholders. And I feel like at least up until my generation, this sixth generation, and hopefully with my kids, that that's something that we pass on is that you've got to be engaged and engaged. Um, And that's that's really like at the heart of everything that I've been trying to do for the last 20 years or so is educate people, but also find something that will engage them in the outdoors. Because, uh, you know, as as we've been saying that 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 engagement equals falling in love and that falling in love means that that they're going to care for it um, and pass that on to their children.
0: So when you you think back to to being a kid and growing up there, you know, say from you know as early as you can remember through college, obviously you were learning a lot from your your parents and your other family members. Were there any other either people you knew or people you read about just that, that kind of influenced your thoughts on the importance of land stewardship, conservation. I mean, any, anybody, or even any experiences you had that you look back and you're like, yeah, that was, that was pretty, uh, influential in my thinking on all this.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I spent some time in the Brazilian Amazon for about three and a half years and we were myself and, um, a, a couple, uh, that was, uh, the wife was, uh, Brazilian born, but had been trained at the TCU ranch management school. And her husband, uh, was a former airborne ranger, went to TCU ranch management school and, uh, was from Texas and ended up in, in Brazil with her managing some property and had started a, a travel business set up very much like African safari, um, Uh, operation. And we, we operated this travel business for a few years and we had the former executive director of Texas Parks and Wildlife, a guy by the name of Andy Sansom, come on a trip with the executive director of Bat Conservation International and um, a landowner from, from South Texas. And we were, we were trying at the time to figure out, you know, how do we stave off what, what was and still is, it just kind of, it, it depends on the year, um, you know, some of the highest rates of deforestation in the world uh, mm-hmm. are on what's called this, you know, transition zone um, between dry forest in in Brazil and and more tropical high forest, like you you might see in in pictures. And he said, you know, we we had this the same issue of you know how do you address conservation on a large scale in Texas years ago, and how do you do it in Texas? Within a public agency, uh, with very little public land right now, Parks and Wildlife Department in Texas has about a million and, and four hundred thousand acres of property that they manage. And then there's the University of Texas System and the General Land Office. But generally speaking, there's about five percent of Texas uh, is is managed by public entities, and the rest is is private. And he said, we we developed a long-standing um, now relationship with private landowners and they were the key to everything we had to incentivize them uh, we had um, uh, surveys and a program that that um, that helped them to understand the biology of um, the wildlife and the wildlife habitat that they've got on the property and it was something that we really hadn't honed in on in in Brazil and it's something that I've have have sort of carried with me is it really comes down to, um, whether it's, you know, civic engagement or political campaign or conservation down to the, the landowner and the stakeholders on the ground. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was something that was hugely impactful. And we ended up, uh, starting a, a landowner based conservation organization and made some headway, where some other international uh, conservation organizations in Brazil hadn't been able to, um, because we just had a, uh, you know, a a groundswell of, of support. And there's some things that I'm working on now that, um, you know, I kind of, I kind of continue to, to step back and, and, um, and realize that unless we have support from the people that this is actually, actually going to impact, yeah. on the ground then then we won't be uh, successful in the long run
0: so your time in brazil that was that was a good transition because that was exactly what i wanted to talk about next so was the guy you're working for is that john carter john king yes. carter is that right yeah yep. he, he's yep. an interesting dude and i i've he read is. a ton about him and heard about a lot about what's you know what what he has dealt with down there and from from The stuff I'd read, you know, there was a time, I don't know if it's still the case, that it was pretty lawless down there. And so when you showed up, I mean, I'm sure you had spent time traveling a bit before that, but you show up and you live there. I mean, what kind of culture shock was that going from the Northeast in college to, (laughs) to all of a sudden, you know, the, uh, a version of the Wild West in Brazil?
1: Yeah, I think the the shock was both culture and just how you described it, this, this just general lawlessness and, um, what felt like Texas and the American West in the 1890s, Mm -hmm. uh, where, where you're basically at a point where the cattle drives are ending. Um, and those, those routes that have been created through the cattle drives have, um, enabled these small towns to pop up. Yeah. Um, they they were, you know, resupply points basically, um, in the western United States. And where we were in the state of Mato Grosso is very much like Texas in that it's mostly privately owned. There's a six million acre uh, indigenous reserve kind of right in the middle of it around one of the tributaries to the to the Amazon River. Um, so shock in terms of just the lawlessness um and also just the 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 deforestation like the rate at which and the and the size because we flew everywhere so uh, i flew with john um and we we took guests around uh for the first couple of years and then my third year i got my pilot's license in the states and and did some of the flying on my own and you see these 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 acre ranches that have been carved out of this immensely biodiverse uh, region um, and and it wasn't, you know, over a 10-year period, it was like you were seeing hundreds of hundreds of thousands of acres being deforested in a matter of 12 months. Wow. Um, and and the the had a burning season that that forest does not traditionally burn like we've like we see in the united states um of our evergreen forest or prairie that tropical forest is not meant to burn and they they have a burning season now uh that lasts from like august through october um and that smoke and i I know this because i've i flew uh a a single engine from the state of sao paulo up to Mato grosso Kind of the center of the of the country, Brasilia, uh, during that that burning season, and the smoke was up at like twelve thousand feet. Wow! For about two thousand miles, so hmm. essentially, you know, covering border. It would be like covering from uh, the New Mexico-Mexico border uh-huh. all the way up to uh, to uh, Whitefish, Montana, or um, you know, the 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 Fernie elk river valley up in uh in the canadian rockies i mean just this huge expanse um so just the scale and um and you know we we were trying to combat that and i think you know what i realized after spending you know about three and a half years and really trying to bring people in uh to support our efforts and and get locals to support our efforts as well with providing them with science and that you know yield from um some of the acreage that they already had that they already deforested would be better, um, by keeping what they had and keeping some of that forest because that forest generates rainfall and there's a cycle. Um, even then, you know, the, the dynamics and the, the momentum of market economics, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of where, uh, Brazil is in terms of its economic cycles. It just was, it was a little bit too much. And so, Um, you know, I, I felt like as an outsider, and that's another thing I've realized is some of the best conservation, um, really has to come from, from locals, like from a local level. And, and that's one of the things that I, that I realized is I would always be, you know, a foreigner in that country.
0: So when you were down there, I mean, I'm sure it was just adventure after adventure, but, but what was, if you could pick one, one uh, experience that was the craziest, like the craziest thing that happened to you, and that could be scary or funny or whatever. But like, yeah. what was the the most intense?
1: Yeah, uh, I had a friend come down from New York, and he was a, a reporter for a local newspaper in, in Manhattan. And he wasn't coming down to report on what I was doing; he was just coming down to to visit. And it was his first time uh, in South America, and I had just received my pilot's license, so I had. And for folks that are that are pilots, they'll know that this is a ridiculously uh, small number of hours. I had like seventy hours Uh under my belt and was landing on uh, some of the like shortest grass and and uh, dirt strips that that you can like physically land on with a with a small plane and. John and I and my friend flew to, um, actually to the center of the Amazon and there's a river called the, uh, Roosevelt. Yeah. If you've, you've, yeah. So the river of doubt. So we we were,
0: we were
1: within a few miles of that. Uh, and if you've read the book, you realize, and it still is this way that it's very remote. It, It takes about, uh, three days by boat to, to get in there. And so we were flying in to make contact with a tribe, um, and, uh, do some scouting, uh, because we were looking at, 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 doing some, some trips up into this, into this area because it's like really pristine, amazing fishing, like 70 pound catfish, Damn. uh, it, huge piranha and just absolutely, you know, wild. And so, um, we're flying in and what they teach you in, in school is you, you want to be able to land, um in a position so that if you, if you, if something happens before you touch down that you can take off. Yeah. And so I come around, um, over this runway and I've got a river on one end and I've got a hundred to 120 foot trees at the other end of the runway and near the river they've cleared out. Um, this was an old gold mining strip from like the eighties. They, they, they basically cleared out, um, the the rest of the runway but it was filled with these huge uh tree stumps like they just didn't go to the to the uh bother of of clearing them out yeah and so i do a couple of circles around and realize you know my best option here is is to come up over the trees come straight down and and land it because if something happens i can at least pull up or go into the river or something and so I do what's called a forward slip and a forward slip is essentially allows you to drop like a brick out of the sky uh-huh. and I do that and and when I do that I, I still pick up some airspeed and this runway is like maybe 800 to a thousand feet long pretty
0: short and what's a typical uh, runway
1: uh typical runway like if you're at an airport or something and it's been a while but I want to say like Maybe four thousand. Oh sh- damn, man! <laughs> so we're we're talking about like um, like landing on uh like uh, the the width of the city block. It's kind of yeah, with, what that you know might look like. Maybe maybe half of that. So I eat up half the runway, like just in what's called ground effect, because I'm just going too fast, mm-hmm. and finally touch down, and it's dirt. And so I press on the brakes, and the thing locks up, and then it starts going faster. It starts skidding Ooh. down the runway, and I remember looking over, and the, the manager of the property and the chef are looking at us like with this – uh, they, they couldn't – like incredulous – look kind of like waving as we go by like why are you going 80 miles an hour past the the front of the runway and we blow through the end of the runway and i see what i think is the blade starting to come off like in pieces and uh what it was was we were cutting through the grass Uh and finally after about 50 feet or so we like rock forward the blade hits the ground in this kind of mulch and then we rock back and my buddy is like ash and (laughs) sweating and uh he we all get out and the manager comes out he's like you guys okay And, and everybody was fine and i was concerned first of all we we landed within about three feet of a stump Mm-hmm. uh which would have which would have pulled the engine if we'd hit it it would have pushed it through the firewall into um into john and i Damn. and so so we dig it out and i said i think i can land that like i think i can land it the, the way that we just came and almost for like for nerves because i knew we were going to be out for three days yeah and to make sure that that like the, <laughs> the plane worked uh took it back up and 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 and, and, and basically did the same maneuver just uh like with a little bit more precision and landed it and everything was fine and then a year later i flew that airplane back to texas and did a like what's called kind of like a recertification they basically give it a new birth certificate yeah uh and they have to go through everything and they took off the hub Mm -hmm. of the the um the front of the propeller and I had sheared off in that crash a bolt and that bolt had been running around in the cone (laughs) of the, uh, of the propeller. And he said it had worn a groove that was so thin that probably in the next like five to 10 hours, it would have sheared off the cone and that cone would have come back into the, uh, into the windscreen and like into the cockpit. So I got super lucky. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. My friend never flew with me. And my wife, for that reason, uh, is taken very few trips with me in an airplane. That's crazy.
0: Well, I mean, that's crazy on a lot of levels. The actual event is crazy. But then the fact that you were flying that thing <laughs> back to Texas. And I mean, is that the closest you've ever come to dying, you think?
1: you know you wonder like you look back on things like man that was really crazy that like that i know of i mean that was very uh it was super close like i think if we had if if we'd gotten you know any further if we'd gone a little bit faster and gone any further down that runway we would have hit one of those tree stumps the one that was in front of us and i think that engine would have come back and in those planes that firewall is basically like as thin as a coke can uh-huh. and so and that engine is you know pretty big and heavy and uh i think that would have would have probably been the end of John and and me. My buddy probably would have survived. And since he's a writer, he probably would have had a pretty good story to tell.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Damn, man. Um, You leave Brazil, come back. Is that when you move to El Paso and get in the real estate business?
1: Yes. Uh, Moved to El Paso, uh, got married in 05. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife moved out there and she was actually doing work for the Peregrine Fund at that time and so she she it was great it was a great move for both of us i was in the commercial real estate business uh we were developing cross-border uh industrial parks got into the ranch ranch um business uh as well in, in new mexico and was traveling uh into tijuana and all the way down to chihuahua and monterey and she was doing work in the marfa marathon area and up on some of ted turner's properties in new mexico and then just made some great friends. Uh, and, you know, in a place that has the largest urban park uh, in the United States with the Franklin Mountains. Yeah. And, you know, pretty close to uh, Rio Doso and, and Taos. And just some great, I mean, that, that for me was a little bit of an eye opener um, in terms of having. That kind of unfettered access to public lands, sure, because New, Me- New Mexico uh, just has some some great access and um, both you know mountains and deserts and and some decent hunting. Uh, so we we had a really amazing time there in in El Paso.
0: And was at the time when you lived there. Was that? Was it pretty rough? Like, like uh, there was a point in the mid two thousands. I feel like when it right. there was a lot of crime along the border because of just some shifts in policy against drug cartels and things like that. Was it was it pretty wild down there at that point? At least the reputation was the reputation, wild? right?
1: I mean, the 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 facts are that Juarez was in like six, seven, and eight the the most deadly, dangerous place in. In the world, yeah, uh, just just because of the murder rate. That that being said, uh, on the El Paso side, just because of the sheer this isn't the only reason, but the the theory being that you've got Customs and Border Protection, you've got w- one of the largest um, military bases in Fort Bliss yep. there, so a lot of military personnel. Um, you've got FBI has an office there. You just have a lot of um, like law enforcement. Presence and so, you know, if if humans and drugs are moving through uh, El Paso, they're thats exactly what they're doing. They're trying to move through and, and get out. Yeah. And so, I actually—I mean, we we never locked our doors. It's it's always ranked for mid-sized cities, in the United States, as either the safest or the second safest city in um, in the nation. And so, we certainly saw it. And I think from El Paso's perspective. We also during that time um, saw the construction of the the border fence mm-hmm. um, under the Secure Fence Act, and so that for me was was eye opening in you know see, seeing a community that truly is binational. That's you know th- three plus million people that depends on you know it's like one out of every uh, eight or nine jobs in El Paso is dependent upon the uh, cross-border manufacturing business in Mexico yeah so it's very very much intertwined you've got families and and friends and and loved ones that cross the border uh, and have ties on both sides and so for me having grown up in South Texas um, that that kind of proximity was um, was new and and brought to light some of the issues and the realities that 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 community was was facing, and that really El Pasoans were trying to help Juárez figure out mm-hmm. how to break that cycle of um, of essentially what was cartel violence. Um, and you know, heard I think one of the most impactful people that I heard while I was there was the mayor of Medellin uh-huh. after um, Medellin sort of came out of the the cartel crisis down there and um, he described essentially how he and a group of friends had all a lot of them had been out of um, the country he was a professor up at Wisconsin yeah. University of Wisconsin came back and they sat around and said we've got to do something uh, because our, our country is in turmoil and we're the only ones, you know, people are, are going to be the ones that bring it back. And so they drew straws for elected offices that uh-huh. they would all run for. And he drew the short straw for mayor of Medellin. Oh, wow. Uh, and this is like shortly after the time of Pablo Escobar. And so he, he runs, he loses, he actually runs again and uh, was, super, was just very successful in investing in some of the lower income parts of, uh, of Medellin and, and giving people uh, access to education and, uh, loans and really building the city up, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I think quad has had still some, uh, fluctuations, but I think the economy is doing much better in Mexico and you're seeing net negative or net zero migration of Mexicans out of, um, the U S. So you got more, uh, Mexican nationals leaving the United States than are actually coming in. And I think that's because the economy has um, has improved. I mean, I think we still the United States needs to do more to to invest there. And that's that's, I think, um, you know, what will help stabilize that that community. But um, just a just a really unique more than any other border city, I think just a unique place in the world.
0: Yeah, well it sounds like you I mean you had a great experience there, you had a great job, it was, you know, a great community, just kind of a, a good all around experience. So what prompted you to leave there and if I if my chronology is right, you went you went to business school and then after that started working for Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation. So yeah. what what kind of prompted the move from Or I guess the first question is, when you left, did you think, all right, I'm going to go into conservation full-time and MBA is a good way to get there? Or was it, I need to figure out the next step, I'm going to get my MBA?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I I had – my degree was in English Mm -hmm. and had had some business business experience. But I love tooling up, and I I wanted some more education. And I also just enjoy – Um, I'm intellectually curious. And I also enjoy uh, being around um, people with different backgrounds and Mm -hmm. perspectives. And, um, you know, while business school attracts a certain type of person, I was interested to kind of see what other people were doing. And also, you know, we had at that time, uh, a young daughter and my family's in South Texas. And I've got brother, a brother and sister that are in, that were in San Antonio, or at least a sister at the time, just wanted to get a little bit closer to family. Yeah. Um, and also I think, you know, see what else, at least as far as Texas goes, what else is out there. And, um, you know, i i really was, had been trying for a long time to try and figure out how do I replicate what we were doing in Brazil, you know, large scale, uh, what I thought was, pretty difficult um conservation work but but do it on my home ground Mm -hmm. And, and business school although that seems like an unusual path was was a way for me to get tooled up give me some time give me a couple of years to kind of figure out where that niche is and i spent a lot of time while i was in business school talking to conservation leaders um around the state about you know what are some of the skill sets that you see, um, in your industry and, and also maybe some skills that are lacking. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I learned having gone to been in business school for about a year and then I, I landed an internship with the national park service, uh, at, at, um, the Grand Canyon that my real estate background also was, um, was a huge asset. And so, um, I just, I really, you know, wanted to ha- have a, take the next step and kind of look at, um, look at prospects from a different perspective.
0: Yeah. I think at least in my experience, uh, you know, we've got very similar backgrounds. I was in, you know, for-profit real estate for a long time and have an MBA. And I think that combo is, is very effective and also very needed in conservation, at least, mm-hmm. at least in the Rocky mountains it is. And I w- it sounds like it's the same in in Texas, I think just having some of those hard skills that you can bring, because um, you know you're dealing with very sophisticated people, it's very sophisticated transactions, yeah. very complex, and I mean it, it sure as hell doesn't hurt. And uh, it seems that at least in Colorado, a lot of people are coming from a ecology standpoint or, or something along those lines. And so when you can bring those those real skills, finance skills, I think it's uh, I think it's huge.
1: Yeah. In, in, in addition to, to finance, I think another great skill that, that people may, you know, don't necessarily think about in terms of conservation is advocacy and marketing. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you've got to be able to, to tell a good story and, you know, you, you learn a lot in, in business school and I think just in life about measurable results. And I think that's, especially with these private public partnerships, uh, that those results measurable results is is a trend um among philanthropists that that they're not they're no longer you know gone are the days of uh just giving you know several thousand dollars a year to an organization because you know it makes you feel good and certainly that happens but the big dollars in conservation are are being raised because you're you're able to articulate a vision. And you know you've got some end goal in mind, um, and, and that you can measure those outcomes.
0: So you finish up business school, and I would guess that you know there are plenty of plenty of ways you could have gone. You could have gone, you could have gone work for the government, National Park Service. You could have worked for. Uh, land trust. I mean, like big or small nature conservancy. I was just in Austin recently and met some of the guys from the Hill Country Conservancy and they were super mm-hmm. cool. So wh- yeah. why did you land on the Parks and Wildlife Foundation? What attracted you to that?
1: The, the ability to impact large uh, swaths of Texas uh, positively, both at the habitat level and at the recreational access um, level. There, there. I don't believe, and I'm obviously biased, and and uh, am and, and coming from a, a, a very particular perspective. There, there isn't another organization out there that's doing um, what Parks and Wildlife Foundation is doing, and and it, it's in part because you've got a state agency that we support, uh, and and we can leverage the dollars that we raise. Um, two and three times with funds that really no other conservation organization in Texas has access to. Yep. Uh, and so th- those kind of basic facts, I thought, you know, with this skill set, um, how can I get more people outside, and how can I, I help conserve, you know, wild things and and wild places in Texas? And it was really just by chance. I happened to be riding my bike from business school to home. And I ran into the executive director of Parks and Wildlife Department, literally almost ran into him with my bike. <laughs> uh, he was coming out of the Capitol. And we had some mutual uh, friends, one being John Carter. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I, I'm really struggling with this. I'm trying to figure figure this out. He said, let's go to lunch. And uh, he at lunch described Parks and Wildlife Foundation, which I'd never heard of. And they were uh, had just changed executive directors and were embarking on a hundred million dollar campaign, and they they were they needed someone. I just really happened to fit the the role who could help them articulate through a business plan how they were going to both raise and spend those dollars. Yep. Uh, and and I had done a business plan like three months earlier for. Uh, Grand Canyon National Park, uh-huh. and so it just really i just happened to be in the right place at the right time
0: well, right place, right time, combined with years and years of of preparation and <laughs> what do they call it sharpening the saw through all your right. you know <laughs> education experience you yeah, you were ready for that right. yeah, um totally. So when you're thinking about Texas and conservation issues, um, what, what would you say is the biggest challenge facing Texas from a conservation perspective in the next 10 years? In Colorado, I think most people say water. There, there's going to be an okay. issue with water out here. And there already are issues, but we've got to figure out a way to deal with it. Wh- what would you say is the answer in your world
1: I think it's, it, it is related to water quality and quantity. I think land fragmentation
0: mm-hmm.
1: is, is probably top of the list uh, just because we have such a uh, rapidly growing population in Texas. We've got a lot of people moving to Texas. You've got these big sprawling cities because unlike some other parts of the country, you're really not geographically constrained. In Texas, you know the the reason why, and we love to drive, Um, and so we're we're eating up um, land in in Texas at at a a very high rate, Um, and so I'd say land fragmentation, uh, access to water, we go through uh, drought cycles, and we have for for years, but that those those drought cycles are intensifying because of climate change, and Mm -hmm. so. Um, you know, we're seeing lakes that now are at hundred percent, but, you know, a year and a half ago were at like 20, 30% capacity. Wow. Uh, and these were man-made lakes that were built not only for water supply, but also for energy. And when you get into a real, uh, crisis situation, um, which we did, you know, about two months ago, we had a, um, a, a boil water, uh, requirement. Here, Because we had so much rain. So we're going through these like huge uh, extremes of drought and flooding that the, the water treatment um, facilities that provides all the water – drinking water for, all, for Austin uh, was so uh, backed up with silt mm-hmm. that, that they had to stop and, and clean out the, the filtration system. And so all of Austin, including the restaurants – we're having to boil the water. So a bunch of them shut down. Uh, And this was, this was for like um, maybe seven plus days. Uh, So I think, you know, maybe one other may just be, you know, as uh, we've got, I I don't know if it's this way in, in, um, in the Western United States, but non-native species, whether you're talking about um, plants or, uh, we have uh, infestation of zebra mussels uh, that that um, are detrimental to a lot of the lakes sort of north of of Austin right now in boats and um, and and other structures uh, and we've got large swaths of the Rio Grande that have creosote which is a non-native species, and um, uh, a, a host of threatened and endangered species that that um, that need our attention and. You know I think the the future is bright in that you've got uh, a, a lot of the a lot of the issues have become acute in Texas. I mean, people, when your water gets turned off, um, or you know you start seeing your lawn turn brown mm-hmm. uh, in the summertime when normally it wouldn't because you're on a water restriction. I think people you know can touch and feel, and in the news, they're reading about climate change. And a lot of these things, um, and and drought and and flooding uh, are, you know, they have personal experience with them. I think while while all of that is bad, I think it does raise awareness, and and hopefully, you know, I, I know that we're doing, um, we're doing a lot in terms of uh, of access to water in the state, and hopefully, you know, we'll do more. And a lot of that is actually tied. There's some revolving loan funds out of the state for land conservation. So they're making that connection between, you know, if you, if you protect open space, then you're protecting um, the watershed and aquifers and um, environmental flows that hopefully end up in bays and estuaries. So I think people are starting to connect the dots at least.
0: Yeah, I think these, uh, I hate seeing it happen, but some of these very acute and these acute crises that pop up, especially related to water, I think right. it's like they say in politics, don't let a crisis go to waste. And I mean, I yeah. think those are great opportunities, really, because it's only going to get worse if, if something isn't done. Um, yeah. So, man, we're already at 55 minutes, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I told you we could do it for like four hours. We, we have to talk about Woodbury because yeah. – so we both we kind of came from w- w- very opposite ends of the of the country you from South Texas me from Eastern North Carolina but we both ended up in the foothills of Virginia at Woodbury Forest and I think we we both just absolutely loved that place and loved the experience we had there and the friendships can you talk a little bit about maybe how you chose to go to Woodbury and then the biggest lessons learned from your time there other than how to do good pranks and tell funny jokes and- <laughs> How'd you end up choosing Woodbury?
1: I had, well, I had family. I had family that had attended Woodbury for decades, yeah. um, or, or over the decades, and and that's how I was aware of the opportunity and the educational um, prospects for me in in South Texas weren't great, um, and and on top of that, you know, I was just like really attracted to this idea that really, you know, for four years you get to focus on academics and athletics as nerdy as that sounds. That was like really attractive to me. And, and so, and so I, I personally felt like I thrived in that environment because if, if you wanted to um, really focus on uh, the academics and, and, get engaged in, in athletics. And I think since we've left the arts and other, you know, if you had an interest, there was an avenue for you there. Yep. Uh, and you could find a group, not just a, a mentor, but you could also find a group of people that would, um, that would get involved in, in those activities with you. And so I think the biggest things that I learned from, from Woodbury were probably, you know, realizing that, we all, it, this sounds really cheesy, but like we truly do have a voice mm-hmm. and, and there were certainly some times and some opportunities where I think if not for what we learned at Woodbury, both while we've been in school and then since then I probably wouldn't have stood up um, and, sa- and said something or um, stood out and, and, and tried to right a wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the honor code, there and you hear that a lot from woodbury graduates is it's very strict and um i still carry that that with me and i think it's shaped also the kind of people that i've surrounded myself with yes um have really strong character and and then the last thing that i that i've i've carried with me to this day is you know we had a pretty regimented and this is not everybody at woodbury but there was if you were involved in sports, like for me, I got into this, uh, routine of, you know, working hard all day and then taking a couple of hours at least out of the day to, to, to focus on athletics and, um, team sports and, uh, and your, your, yourself, uh, and, and I've, I've carried that with me and, and all of the, I think mental fortitude that comes with that and teamwork and, all of those things, I'm sure you learn, I mean, we don't, I don't have an, an alternative perspective, mm-hmm. but I feel like we got that in spades, all all of those things um, through, through that education.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's such a formative age, you know, from 14 to 18, I guess. You were there a year before me, so I got there when I was 15, but mm-hmm. it's a really cool experience. And just hard to measure the impact of being in a place like that where you're rewarded for doing all the right things. You're rewarded for being honorable, for not lying, cheating, stealing, for not putting up with anybody that does, for, you know, working extremely hard academically, working extremely hard athletically. You know, I, I, I don't know that. I'll ever have a schedule as tight as it was yeah. at Woodbury. I mean, it was from 7 a.m. Yeah. to 1 a.m. at least senior yeah. year and class on Saturdays, you know, that people can't believe that, but, right. And I just, yeah. man, I just loved it. And I don't know, I would be a completely different person without that experience, um, for, for so many different ways. And, and the cool thing about it is that they've, they've maintained those standards. I mean, here we are 25 years after we got there and it's even better than it was when we were there. Yeah.
1: Um, and, it, and It's cool. I, and I, yeah, and I I have have kind of continued uh, or try. I'm not sure that I'm always successful at it to to like maintain that schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, with you know we weren't um, having to take care of kids and maintain a relationship, yeah. <laughs> with <laughs> a significant other, and uh, a job and all those things. But but I, I've tried to kind of meld that um, or or mo- replicate that mold of a schedule of just sort of get getting after it and doing as much as you, you know, is humanly possible in a day. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and hopefully, you know, at some point reaping the benefits of that.
0: Yeah. I'm at my best when I'm that way. And I always think back to, you know, this is how I was at Woodbury. This is how the schedule Mm -hmm. was at Woodbury. And somebody was making me do it then. Whereas (laughs) now it's, you know, it it all has to be self-motivated, but that's the baseline. And, um, I've just found in, in a million different ways, it's, it, that is the that's the goal on a daily basis yeah. for me. So, and I think I yeah. think if you talk to guys from class of 1950 or guys from class of 2018, they would all say a similar thing, which is pretty yeah. pretty unique. Um, yeah. What a what a great experience and a funny experience too. I, we won't go into some of the other uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. stuff. Well, so real quick, will you just tease? Your upcoming film and then when it comes out we'll we'll talk more about it because i had ben masters on the podcast a long time yeah. ago he was nice enough to come on when i think i had like i'd done like six episodes or something <laughs> and so can you just kind of give a, a tease of that and then we'll, we'll talk about it in detail when, when it comes out
1: sure uh so uh, to preface it all look for the, the film uh t- to premiere in spring of 2019 and then we'll do a festival run uh, subsequent to that, and then hopefully, you know, we'll we'll be streaming sometime uh, in the summer and fall. Uh, but the film is based on a trip that five of us did by horse, uh, bike, and canoe from El Paso to the Gulf of Mexico along the Texas-Mexico border and the Rio Grande River to uh, understand the impacts of a proposed contiguous border wall. And so we started December 1st of last year, uh, 2017, uh, at the Texas, Mexico, New Mexico border and, uh, spent 72 days, uh, on, on the, the, the river, um, and had just a, a varying set of backgrounds. Uh, Ben's a director and uh, horse guy. Uh, I've got some conservation and private and public lands experience. We had a river guide whose parents are from Guatemala originally, who immigrated uh, without documentation in the 70s to to Texas and, and he was subsequently born in, in Austin. His name's Austin. Uh, <laughs> and and lives out in, in the Turlingua area as a river guide. And then Heather Mackey, who's an orthologist trained at Cornell uh, and is now at UCLA and just an all round uh, badass. She, after we finished our trip, uh, fev- roughly February the 15th, several months later, uh, soon after she finished her, um, her degree, she rode with her father from, uh, uh, Canada to Mexico on a mountain bike. So she's, she's definitely uh, got the endurance bug. And then Philippe D'Andrade, who's a host on uh, Nat Geo Wild, uh, oh, cool. and he's got his own immigration story. Uh, and so sin- since then, I mean, we finished the film back in February and uh, have been doing, Ben and I and Hillary, the producer, have been doing talks um, around the state. We went up to DC last week and did a, a private screening for some staffers, some congressional staffers, and had Senator Udall from New Mexico and Congressman O'Rourke and Congressman Hurd from Texas there in, in an attempt to try and, relay to folks what the, the damage to access to water, uh, in the middle of a desert, um, migration patterns of, of wildlife. And, you know, people don't, the last thing I'll say is people don't understand that, you know, if you look at where the existing fence is and there's 700 miles of it, 136 of it in Texas, west of Texas, it's pretty much like on straight lines. Yeah. But when you look at that fence in Texas, it's a quarter to three quarters to up to a mile right now uh, from the river, which is the international boundary itself. And so when when we're talking about a contiguous border wall in Texas, at least, uh, you're separating Texans from the Rio Grande, number one. And number two, you're seeding over a million acres to the south side of the wall, which mm-hmm. essentially becomes a no man's land, which in Texas should be cause for revolution <laughs>
0: yeah uh yeah.
1: And, and revolt um and so we're just trying to get the information out and hopefully this this film will help
0: i can't wait to see it uh unbranded is one of the the best documentaries i've ever seen and this one is, it looks like it's going to be that you know times three or four i mean it's just going to be a, a awesome because there's so much um it's a current issue that that needs to be explored yeah. and um it, a lot of goods can come from that so i, I can't wait to see it well We'll get back on here and talk about it when it comes out. Um, sure. And then one more thing, and then I want to ask you some quick questions. You, I, I wanted to talk about your humility, and then that was a perfect example because you you were talking about your, the the person in the film who rode her bike from uh, Canada to Mexico, and you just happened to glaze over that you did that as well. You didn't mention that you did that <laughs> as well.
1: Opposite direction. Opposite direction. <laughs> oh, you rode the other way. No. Yeah, I wrote it the other way, so it, it wasn't a uh, it was a non sequitur.
0: Well, <laughs> one of the things ever since I've known you for twenty five years, you know, you're from Texas, you grew up on a big ranch, you're a great athlete, smart, the whole deal, and so that that seems, if you think about that, that is a formula for being a loudmouth or being arrogant or being cocky. But you're the exact opposite. So where did that come from? Like because that is not that is not your stereotypical Texas. And so is that, is that, is that a, uh, a family thing? Has that been drilled into your head or is it just how you were born? I don't, I don't know your brothers and sisters. Maybe they're real loudmouths. <laughs> Super
1: <laughs> arrogant. Yeah. I mean, they really, uh, they, 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 pushed me to, to, to this humility. Massive no, cowboy and, hats. And it's, <laughs> it's funny that we're talking about humility, uh, and, and on a podcast all about me. So I appreciate <laughs> that plug. Um, you know, honestly, I, it came. It comes from my parents. Yeah. Uh, but your parents can only, you know, tell you so much. I think certainly the way they carry themselves uh, and, and the way that they act and um, care about people uh, in, a, in a very small agrarian community, where you know everyone uh, is—it's a very cooperative environment—and uh, then I think growing up with cowboys and their children and they didn't allow allow you to get away with anything. Yeah. You know, they didn't, they didn't take any shit. Yeah. And, so, and so if you didn't carry your weight around the pins or you fell off horseback or you just weren't you were no good, then they had no use for you. And, sure. and there was, there were no, you know, certainly um, I was aware that my father was, one of the bosses. Uh, and so I think I was ultra sensitive to that and, and overcompensated, uh, and tried to be, you know, as best as I could possibly be at like every thing that I did so that there were, there was no excuse for anybody to handle me any differently. Mm -hmm. Um, and that carried through to, to school, uh, on the ranch and really trying to prove myself, like prove that that there was something beyond just uh, a facade. And, and I think like what I realized too, and hopefully I think every, you know, I hope that everyone realizes this, although we're seeing, I guess that bear out differently with our administration currently, that it does no good to, um, to talk about yourself and to not be a team player, at least I think in the long run, It doesn't like you get so much more accomplished if um, if you if you're in it as uh, as a collective rather Mm -hmm. than than for yourself because I think people see through that and um, and so you know I just have no use for um, for 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 not being humble. It, it just doesn't, you know, maybe that's selfish in its own way. Right. No, I, um,
0: I think, and I think in a way you wouldn't say this cause you're too humble, but I think the um, I think humility is, is ultimately a sign of confidence. I think the people that are mouthing off and talking real big and they are, you know, it's the older I get, the more I realize that they're obviously trying to cover up something and the people I see it time and again. And basically every single person I've had on this podcast is like that. They're, they're just humble about what they're doing and they're passionate about what they're doing. And, and that comes from a, a deep inner confidence that some of it's inborn and a lot of it is built up through, you know, just, just working your ass off. And um, I mean, I think you can gain a lot of confidence just by hard, hard, hard work, which is clear you do um, academically, athletically and professionally. So anyway, I'm, I'm glad we got a guy like you on the side of conservation because it's um, there's some big challenges.
1: Yeah. Well, my dad, my dad says uh, always says just get after it. And uh, you know, it's been it's such an interesting time to live in, where creating brands is no longer the responsibility solely uh, or the the um, the playing field of companies. Mm-hmm. It's it's been brought down to the level of the individual, yep. which is extremely empowering. But at the same time, like for me with this film and with other things, it's like such a it's so against how I operate. Um, to, to try and, um, promote like myself. Yeah. Um, but, but there's almost like a requirement to do that. Not necessarily to promote yourself, but promote what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I've been trying to learn from Ben and, and from others that, you know, there is a balance there and it doesn't have to be about yourself. I mean, I think some people add a lot of that because they've got an audience that's interested in that personal stuff. Um, but what I what I what I like about social media and the current state is that you do have you know platform and I think everyone or a lot of people have you know interesting things to say and if if what we're doing you know what you're doing and um, and others is ultimately for the betterment of society then get after it you know and uh, not just do but also try to educate people about about what you're doing and what some of the challenges are.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. I've I've thought about that exact thing and I think what you're doing and to an extent what I'm trying to do here is it's not about me or it's not about you. It's about getting these ideas out there and it's kind of like a service to, to the people who are interested and just the more info, the better. And I feel like that's, that's exactly what you're doing in, in everything you've got going on. So anyway, keep it up. And let me, let me go through a few of these quick questions and I'll let you get back to, to your important, or you're just kind of sitting around today, right? You are just kind of taking it easy, I feet up on in, the desk. Uh,
1: yeah. Slippers, uh, <laughs> and pajamas, like those silky oh, yeah, pajamas, yeah. kind Smoking of a baby blue. Nice. Yeah, Well, more of a baby blue. I'm, I'm kind of a, like a Motown, you know, Motown guy. Um, so yeah, just hanging out.
0: Cool. Um, all right, so I've asked pretty much everybody on the podcast these questions. It's good to compare the answers. What, if any, is your favorite or favorite books about the American West? Do you have any that come to mind?
1: I, man, um, Empire of the Summer Moon is Ooh, kind good. of a Texas book, but it's it's about Native American culture and sort of the end of of, of an era. And um, although Stephen Ambrose has <laughs> come under fire uh, over the last decade or so. Man, undaunted courage, so good, is so good, and I just I love that stuff. I mean, if I could have taken that job um, with, with Lewis and Clark or had been one of them, I, I would have. I would have taken it. Um, and then there's, it, it's not necessarily about the West, but there's a there's a book called The Nature Fix.
0: Oh, I just read that so good
1: by Florence Williams. Yeah, so good. And all the things that you and I know and feel when we're outdoors, she's able to, uh, scientifically and neurologically quantify Mm -hmm. like the benefits uh, (laughs) and talking about, about, uh, backcountry brain. Yep. And essentially, you know, if you're out outdoors and in open space for, for a couple of days, you start to like, your mind starts to expand, you become more creative and that was one of the aha moments for me in this company um, with Explore Ranches is if we could enable more people to have those moments outdoors, then you know, we're doing a service, uh, not only to, to the environment, but, but to them and their, and their mental health.
0: That's a great book. And I I thought the same thing. I thought I I already know all this, but I didn't have any data to back up what I thought (laughs) I knew. And so that's a great book. I think everybody should read that. Do you have any favorite documentaries or films?
1: So, because it's relatively uh, recent, uh, we went to Telluride Mountain Film Fest this last year and uh, saw The Dawn Wall.
0: Oh, I haven't seen that yet. Tommy
1: Caldwell. Sure. And just. You know, I love movies that I, I I assume I know what it's about going into it, and then it just blows my mind. Um, in in terms of the story and the characters, and and this is one of those like adventure based, uh, movies that has some real depth to it, and and really like dives into to uh, someone's for, in, intestinal fortitude and their character and their strength and like what it what it takes to be. Um, what I heard someone say on a panel recently the there's extra and extraordinary and Tommy Caldwell has that extra like extra effort um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and mental toughness to, to have done what he, what he did in Yosemite.
0: And he's missing a finger too.
1: Yep. Which missing is a insane
0: for a, a rock yeah. climber. Um, yeah. He's, he's a hard ass. Yeah. I, I, I want to get him on the podcast at some point. Um, yeah.
1: And I, you know what, I, this just, this just, uh, one comes to mind real quick, uh, yeah, yeah, because, because he's a, he, he was on our, uh, crew and was, was a big part of unbranded, um, Phil Baraboo's charged. Um, and I know you've, I know you've had Eduardo on the, the I've podcast,
0: had, I've had Becca, his wife story. or his fiance, and I'm, I'm hoping to get Eduardo on soon. Um, okay. what a cool dude. I mean, just a really, yeah, I, I, that, that movie's awesome. Yeah. Those are, those are both great. Um, this is, this will be funny. So you obviously, you got a lot going on. You do long distance mountain biking, triathlons. You got three girls. I mean, you're full speed. Is there any activity you do that would be surprising? That's maybe funny or weird. You're out, you're sitting around in baby blue pajamas right now, apparently. Uh, well, anything else?
1: Yes. Uh, that's a, a good segue. We have an entire closet of wigs and costumes. And we had a, a, someone come over to help my wife with like, you know, uh, storage, you know, they come in and they help you like,
0: Oh yeah. Put Clean together stuff racks out. and things yeah. like that. Yeah.
1: And she came downstairs like with really wide eyes and kind of like left awkwardly. And I was like, what, is, what, what happened? And, she ends up calling my wife later and she's like, um, What is, I look, I don't mean to pry, but what are all those wigs doing up in that like secret closet upstairs? She's like, I can, I can explain. We love Halloween and costume parties. So I've got, I, we have a bunch of wigs and I've got a Teen Wolf outfit oh, uh, that I pull out every couple of years and I even went van surfing uh, a, a few years ago when I was a little bit younger um, and, and for those that don't know that's a scene in in Teen Wolf the movie with, uh, I think it was Jason Jason Bateman? Oh, oh, no, yeah. no, no, it was Michael no, J. Fox, Michael J. Fox. Uh, The original was Michael J. Fox uh, So anyway, I've dressed up as Britney Spears uh, uh, just for, you know, my children's, my, I have daughters, so just for their sake. So anyway, that's uh, something my wife and I, uh, a good, clean fun that we enjoy.
0: Jay's an excellent dancer, too. <laughs> Rich, Richard Wright's wedding, you were you were taking care of business.
1: <laughs> and in high heels, it is extremely <laughs> challenging, I have to say.
0: Uh, so what is your favorite location in the West, if you had to pick one?
1: Okay, so this is non-U.S., so don't shoot me. No, that's but right. uh, the Elk River Valley between fernie like uh, essentially uh north of uh whitefish and rooseville
0: oh montana
1: okay you go the elk river valley when we were on our uh mountain bike trip flooded um but even even in those circumstances from fernie north to Banff, the the rocky mountains are extremely severe and the valley is relatively narrow yep and so you're and you've got these amazing lakes. So you're you're riding, or you're hiking, or you're driving through this valley with with these you know uh, uh, peaks that emerge five six thousand feet above you, and they're snow capped, and these like moss ringed, uh, fern covered lakes. I mean, it's just like a magical place, and I- I'll never forget it. And I want to go back. Like if I were to do a section of That again, that Great Divide mountain bike route again. I would do the Gila because it's so hard. Yeah, and I would do parts of, you know, most of Montana just because it's so wide open, and that that Elk River Valley is just spectacular.
0: I've never been up there. I'll add it to my list. Amazing, my ever-growing list. Um, So next to the last question, if you could make a request of the people that listen to this podcast as people that love the American West in one way or the other have an interest in conservation, either in ranching or uh, athletics or art, you know, just people that love the West. If there's something, offer some words of wisdom or offer some advice. Is there anything that comes to mind?
1: I would say, and I guess I've said it, maybe it's a a common theme uh, over the last hour or so, is to get engaged because like what I've seen is we've got a about a 900-member organization that we started at Parks and Wildlife Foundation to engage 21 to 45-year-olds that are mostly city-based professionals mm-hmm. in real estate or government or oil and gas. And A lot of them either grew up in in rural um, Texas or, you know, they had parents that hunted and fished and hiked and did all those things. But they live in cities now and they just don't get out anymore. And we've seen over the last five years that this group of 900 people now are hunting. They're taking first-time hunters and a group of people that have basically been left behind Mm -hmm. by conservation organizations because they're too old. Uh, They're right in the middle, right? they're 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 not 10 years old or 15 years old and people feel like well you know you can't change their behavior and they're not old enough for some conservation organizations especially that are raising money to care about because they haven't yet made enough money to give much back yeah but that's an entire group that has the time uh and in some cases has the means uh to to get out and and get engaged and then once they're equipped they're taking more you know of their friends outdoors and um and and so we're providing those opportunities for people to get to get educated and for me like for over my lifetime just caring about something and taking the risk of uh of maybe losing potentially some time um getting engaged in in something i'm i'm interested in has is the reason why i've I've lived, uh, the, the life and kind of where, where I am now is because I just kind of got interested in something and then got more and more engaged in it and met people that were in that community and, um, and feel like, you know, have, have done, have done what I can so far,
0: uh, and taken some of those opportunities. You're getting after it the dad's advice. It. That's the, that's, that's right. the, I got a coffee mug that says get after it on it. You should get <laughs> one of those. Um, so how can people connect with you online, connect with explore ranches, uh, the new film, all that.
1: Yeah. Uh, so Jay Clayberg, J A Y K L E B E R G, uh, Instagram and Facebook. The company is explore ranches and that's just simply exploreranches.com. We also have uh, Instagram and a Facebook page where people can check out some of our videos and, um, and footage of some of the properties that, that we have listed. And um, Parks and Wildlife Foundation as well for folks that are in Texas, uh, tpwf.org. And then finally, uh, The River and the Wall um, is at theriverandthewall.com. I believe. Uh, and if you just Google the river and the wall, you'll see, you know, Instagram and Facebook and, and uh, other uh, channels and, and look for that to, to premiere hopefully in, uh, in March of this next year.
0: Awesome, man. I'll have links to all that, but thank you so much Great. for your time. Thanks for everything you're doing. This crazy. Uh, I think they were tape recorders were, were the, the rage when you and I first met and we were doing this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, I, I really appreciate it. Hey,